relationship lessons. We're beginning a new series today. We're going to go over the next several weeks going through and looking at the book of Ruth with the express focus of looking for relationship lessons. And something that's wonderful is that we can learn from something that was written literally 3,000 years ago, and it's still so incredibly relevant and applicable in our lives today. In our family relationship, in our work relationship, in our school relationship, the way we interact with our community, we have all these relationships when they're all working smoothly, when you and your spouse are getting along well, when your kids are being obedient, when everyone at work is doing their job correctly, when all your bills are paid. At school, the students do all of their homework. And you do excellent every single test and everything's going so smooth around the playground and everything's going well. You look at it and think, life is easy. The problem is, that's not reality. Reality is, problems will come. So how are we supposed to respond as believers in Jesus Christ when things don't go well? And we're going to specifically look at it in regards to our relationships, but really this is applicable in all areas of our life. And I'm going to be inviting you through the course of today, but also the course of the series, to become a trader. Now, I didn't say a traitor, as in you are against Australia and you're going to be a spy against Australia. Not that sort of traitor. It's a traitor as in I want you to trade the old way for the new way of living. The physical for the spiritual. The me-focused for, quite literally, the supernatural way of living. And this morning we're looking at the fact that we need to face facts. Face facts in our lives is incredibly important, and that helps us being a trader. We're going to trade fear for faith. We want to trade the short-term pain and discomfort of this life for an eternal view of heaven and eternity. We're going to look for the big picture, the long-term perspective. We want to trade the comforts of today, knowing that we have a blessed hope and crowns of glory one day to look forward to in heaven. We want to become traitors. In our life, we have choices. Our lives are filled with choices. And every single one of us has a choice of how we're going to live and how we're going to respond when the good times come, but also when the hard times come. And someone came up with three different E words, which I stole from a book That's why they're all alliterated so well. And it's endure trouble. So when hard times come, we have the temptation to just endure. If I just, for men, man up and act like this is I'm tough, then I can make my way through this trial and this this time of trouble. Others of us, probably most commonly, we seek to escape it. If I can just run away from trouble, if I can just totally avoid it completely, then I'll be okay. And because it has to be an E word, we're going to use the word enlist. Enlist trouble. Now that's a weird way of saying it. But literally, it is understanding that God has put me exactly where he's placed me. And I'm going to allow God to be God in my life and allow God to 
enlist and use this trouble to grow me, to develop me, to change me into the person that God has created me to be, rather than just enduring it, because we're all going to face trouble, and rather than escaping it, how can we let God and leverage it to enlist it for our benefit and ultimately for His glory? That right there will transform the way we look at the trouble that we all face in our lives. This morning, our principle is a very simple principle. It is, in times of trouble, I must trust in God's promises. Now, it's so easy to read. That just rolled off my tongue. It was so easy. But you know what? That's a really hard principle to live out. Because in times of trouble, we naturally seek to endure and we naturally seek to escape. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of the book of Ruth. And through the course of the series, I'm going to give you more information about some of the background, the history, uh, things as, as time goes on. If you know the story, today I'm going to leave you very dissatisfied because we're just looking at the first five verses. And we're just setting a foundation of the attitude and what was taking place in this family. This was written during a time period known as the time of the judges. It was around 1100 B.C., so literally over 3,000 years ago, this was taking place in ancient Israel. During this time period, I'll give you the history of Israel, a real quick snapshot of Israel. You had the man Abraham and his wife Sarah, who were called out by God to go to a land that God would show them. And they faithfully followed God, and they left their family and their homeland to a land that God opened up for them. And God made several promises to Abraham. And he told them one particular promise was a covenant that he made. And it was a promise that says, I'm going to make you a great nation. At the time, Sarah and Abraham were elderly. They did not have any children of their own. And they look at each other and go, God, you're going to have to do something miraculous here. Because we've tried and it hasn't worked yet. And God provided them with a son. And he says, and through your family, the whole world is going to be blessed, which was a tremendous prophecy, not of just of the nation of Israel, but also of the coming Jesus Christ. And God had a plan and purpose for the nation of Israel from the very beginning when he first put it together. And through the course of time, they grew and developed. And as a, as a family unit, they ended up in Egypt Hundreds of years in Egypt, they became slaves and oppressed. And God raised up a man named Moses, which led the nation of Israel out of Egypt toward their promised land, where modern day Israel is today. And because of their unbelief, the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time period, the the previous generation passed away. The younger generation raised and grew up. And God raised up a man named Joshua who led the nation of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. And God gave them very specific instructions of how they were to enter into the promised land. And you read that in the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, you read how they were to go into the land and clear out all the other surrounding nations that were that were worshiping false gods, that were going to lead their people away from following the one true God. And because of Israel's unbelief, once again, they did not complete the task that they were given. They left remaining 
other nations and other folks' gods in their land. They were in their promised land, as the Bible describes, a land flowing with milk and honey. They had their inheritance. They had everything God had promised, God had supplied, except they didn't do their part. And every single time discomfort took place, every single time that trouble happened, the nation of Israel, because of their unbelief, both as family units and also as a nation as a whole, would turn away from the one true God and go back and begin serving the false demonic gods surrounding them. And these false demonic gods were not gods that had similar worship. It wasn't in a way that was, oh, it's almost the same. It was polar opposites where they had human sacrifice. You would sacrifice your babies to their false gods in the most horrendous and disgusting ways. And God would allow these surrounding nations to oppress the nation of Israel. And he would enlist that trouble to bring them back to himself. And the nation of Israel, time and time and time again, you read through the book of Judges, they would go back and forth and back and forth, serving the false gods and then serving God. And God would raise up people called judges. And these judges would lead the nation and lead different tribes to overcome the oppressors and lead the people back into relationship with God. And for a period of time, the people would be faithful. The next generation would raise up and they would turn back to the false gods. We can see a similarity in our society today. And the very last chapter of the book of Judges is Judges chapter number 21. If you found the book of Ruth, go one page over and you'll have the end of the book of Judges. The last two verses talk about what's taking place during this time period. The people of Israel departed from there at that time and every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. So God had provided for them their promised land, and now they're finally living in their promised land. They're living just like God promised them. And it goes on, In those days there was no king in Israel. And here's the key that I want you to get. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can you see a similarity with our society today? 3,000 years ago, that's exactly how Israel was. Everyone was doing, if it feels good, do it. If it makes me happy, then it must be right. If I'm going to do whatever is right in my own eyes, what that passage doesn't say is, I'm going to do what is right because God has told me to do it. And when we become the judges, have you ever tried to get more than one person together to agree with you? It's really, really, really difficult. And even in the best marriages, you have, I won't call it fighting, we just have discussions. And you have conflict in even the best marriages. And here we have a nation working and thinking to themselves, circumstances may go up, they may go down, so whatever I choose to do must be the right way to do that. How society must be trying to interact with their neighbors. And that leads us into Ruth chapter number one. I'm going to read the first five verses. And it's going to set us up for what's going to take place for the rest of this book. But we're setting a foundation today. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a troubled time has come. There's a famine. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. 
he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I read that relatively flat. Do you imagine all the emotion in those five verses there? You have the emotion of Elimelech, which is a really hard word to say slowly. You have to say that word really fast. If you want to say it right now, it's kind of a fun word to say. Elimelech. And Elimelech, as the husband and as the father and as the provider, he has a dilemma. There's a famine in their promised land, in his inherited land of Bethlehem. And what's he going to do? How is he going to provide for his family? And what we find here is he doesn't go and seek wise counsel. He doesn't pray about it. He seeks to escape it. He endures it for a period of time and then seeks to escape. And he goes not very far away. And if you have your Bible there, you'll be able to see in the back of your Bible, you may have some maps. And if you see in your maps on the east side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Dead Sea is the land of Moab. The Moabites were the enemy of Israel. The previous generations, they had fought against them. Their God was referred to as, it's called Chemosh. He was referred to by God as the abomination of, of Moab. So they left their promised land and they had escaped to Moab, the enemy. You think of the emotions that are taking place here of Naomi. She's gone to a new country, a new place. There's new religion around everywhere. You have new way of talking, a, do, a different language. Everything is different about this, this time period for them. And then her husband goes and dies. Then she has her sons marry Moabite women. And that's against the law of God. But they did it anyway. And then her sons die. And now she's all by herself with two foreign girls with her thinking, what am I going to do? And if you know the story of Ruth, I'm not going to talk about it today. Let me encourage you. It's only four chapters. Spend some time reading it this week. It's not a hard book to read. And it's a rewarding love story. A little bit of a positive spoiler. It's a really good ending. But we're just going to talk about the bad trouble right now. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to filter through in our own lives the way that we naturally respond to trouble. When trouble times come, do you endure trouble? Do you seek to escape trouble? Or do you enlist trouble and let God be God in your life to teach you and grow you and ultimately give you opportunity to give God glory? So let's begin with some facts. We're going to face facts this morning. There's three facts we're going to look at. The first fact that we're going to face, God's promises are true. That's in direct contrast to Judges chapter 21, verse 25, where it says, Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You see, 
These people at this time period, 3,000 years ago in Bethlehem, had the promises of God. They were living in the inheritance that God had given them. They had every opportunity to know God, to serve God, to receive the blessings of God, yet they continually chose to turn their back and go to seek other gods. They They sought to endure, they sought to escape when troubled times came. The name Elimelech. And during that time period, people would name their children because their names had meaning behind them, not just because their names sounded good or rhymed well. And so Elimelech literally means God is my king. He was living in the promised inheritance of God, but he was living as if God did not exist. And when we fail to let God be God, when we fail to allow God and enlist God in the times of trouble, we're essentially calling God a liar about the promises of God. God has tremendous promises. And this was a bit of a frustration for me studying this week because I had to get rid of a whole lot of great notes and narrow this down to just six simple promises and six simple verses because you start studying out the promises of God that you already know. So first of all, we need to begin to look. Have you noticed in the promises of God that you have to actually look for them? And when you look for the promises of God, they begin to jump out. As you read your Bible, and something I genuinely enjoy doing is reading in a time of need, saying, God, I need you now. And it's amazing, and I don't think it's coincidence at all, it's God working through the Holy Spirit, that he leads us to the right verse at the right time. And we think to ourselves, well, that was an interesting coincidence. How I read this incredible passage, and I, saw, and I found encouragement in the Word of God. When we look for the promises, it's amazing how they jump out. Now, I don't know about ladies, but I know men, we have a hard time looking and seeing things. We can be looking directly in front of us and not see things directly in front of us. Then we complain about it and we call out to our wives and say, I mean, this is hypothetical in my family. And we call out to our wives, where is this? And we certain thing and, and our wives say, exactly, exactly right in front of us. And this is what I think. This is just my theory is that when we can't see something directly in front of us and we call out to our wives, we turn our attention away for a moment. Our wives come in and put it there and then they say, it's right here in front of you. But God does not do that. God says, I have my promises. They're written for you in my word of God, the Bible. They're here for you to discover. Now start looking for them. And you know what? When we start looking for the promises of God, the fact is God's promises are true. Now we need to start looking for them. Simple things like this. I'm going to go through six of them very quickly. Love. We have the promise of God's love. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. We have the promise of God's forgiveness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe that's a verse we need to memorize. We have the promise of being able to communicate with God through prayer. In Proverbs 15, 29, it says, The Lord hears the prayers of the righteous. We have the promise of purpose in our life. You are not a cosmic accident. God has created you with a plan and with a purpose. 
in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. We also have the promise of God's provision, which is in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And we also have the wonderful hope of a future. The grave is not the end of our story. We have a future. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some Bible versions translate that first word waiting as looking for. It has the, the meaning of that word waiting is not just sitting back and going, yeah, go ahead and show me. It's a sense of anticipation. We are actively anticipating the blessed hope and appearing and the glory of a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a very different attitude. And when we have these promises, we begin to look for them. God gives us the privilege of being able to learn. Now, this isn't really a surprise, but isn't it a privilege to be able to learn and not know everything? Because if everything I have to know is I've already known, known it, I'm in trouble. We have the ability to learn. A number of years ago, when the U.S. Navy would come into Fremantle Harbor, they used to be able to have the aircraft carriers come right into the harbor, and they would give tours of the ship. And the U.S. Navy guys were always give tours. And my mother had a friend that she actually went to high school with that was a Navy pilot that came through. And so he gave us the real tour. And he gave us behind the scenes. And he was an officer, so we ate with the officer mess. It's called a mess is where they eat. And we ate there. Then he gave us a tour of, of their squadron quarters and then up where the planes would fly. And he would give us really the behind the scenes. Something that was remarkable is you think as a pilot and all the billions of dollars of equipment sitting on that deck that they would be really careful and only use it when they needed it. But he said whenever they were out, they call it on cruise, out on the, on the, the sea, out in open water, they would fly the, their planes every single day. And all the maintenance involved in the fuel and the possible danger and all these things involved because they were continually training and training and training so that when the battle came, they weren't getting out the manual and going, now, how does this work again? They were ready to react immediately rather than going, I don't know what to do in a battle. Have you noticed that Satan almost always attacks when we're not ready, when we're not prepared. So in order to prepare, we need to be looking and we need to be continually learning. It says in Matthew chapter number 5, verse 6, Blessed are those, and here's our goal, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is a way of reflection. I want to encourage you, to start thinking about what God has for you in promises. Because you start reading your Bible and reflecting upon the things that are true in God's Word. 
we can look for the truth and the promises of God. We can learn the promises of God. But we also have, and the third point is, we get to live the promises of God and live them out in our daily lives. This is the opposite of living under our circumstances. If we base ourselves just upon our circumstances, we're literally living, as it says in, the, in, in Judges 21, everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. If we're based upon circumstances, our emotions go up and they go down, they go back and they go forth. Someone's going to annoy you today. Someone's going to hurt your feelings. And if we allow our circumstances to govern us, we're all over the place. But when we begin to live the promises of God, we begin to live differently. Many of you have children. And my children were fantastic kids. But they weren't perfect. And you choose to love that child and you choose to care for that child. But at 2 a.m., after 72 hours of crying and not settling down and you haven't slept in so long, that's not when you go, I'm going to choose to love them now. You've already made that choice way beforehand. Because if you're choosing at 2 a.m., you're going to have a hard time really loving them because you're going to be questioning, hmm, what can I do to get rid of them? We don't want to live as everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. We want to contrast that with having the mind of Christ, living out the promises of God. Because in our lives, we have choices. When troubled times come, those choices again, we have the choice to endure. We have the choice to escape. We also have the choice to enlist trouble and let God be God. As it says in Joshua 24, verse 15, Joshua, in challenging the nation of Israel as an elderly man, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need to face the fact. The first fact is the promises of God. The second fact is, and the, sec and the second and the third facts, I'm going to go through quite quickly. It's this, hard periods will come. Have you noticed that either you are currently in, you're coming out of, or you're going into a hard time? It's a guaranteed in our life that life is up and down and back and forth. And if you're not currently going through a hard time, praise God, but you probably just came out of one and you're going into another one. It says in Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5, this is the bad things that happened, the, the hard times. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So there was environmental trouble. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. So there's a man who passes away. That's some serious trouble. And then Naomi has the trouble of being, now she's the sole provider for her two sons. And both Malon and Chilion both die. They, I believe, endured for a period of time in Bethlehem and then chose to escape to Moab. They did that which was right in their own eyes. That was 3,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was writing to a young pastor named Timothy. And Timothy chapter number 3, if you just take that passage out of context, it's actually a really discouraging passage. But it reflects our society today really well. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse 1, it says, But understand this, in the last days, which I believe we're coming close to, to the last days now, 
there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If verse 13 was the end of the book, full stop, that's it. What a sad, discouraging passage. We are without hope. Thankfully, it continues on. And in verse number 14, it continues on and says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. And it goes on in verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have to face the fact. The fact number one is God's promises are true. Fact number two is hard periods will come. And number three is you can't run away from your problems. It would be so much nicer just to be able to close the door on all our problems. Anytime that my family goes away on, on holiday, my wife likes to leave the house as clean as possible. So she rushes and she mops, like she literally mops us out of the house. Get out of the house and she mops the door. She puts the mop next to the garage door, closes the door, and no one can go back in the house. But it's so nice to be able to walk back into a clean house. Because we've learned from experience, leaving a dirty house does not magically make it a clean house. Running away from our problems does not solve our problem at all. It just delays it. And it says in Ruth 1, chapter 1, In the days when the judges ruled over, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. In our lives today... I hope that you're not running away to Moab. We like to find the easy way out. I came across this joke this week where it's, it's on the screen. You may have a hard time seeing it, but the joke says this. Hey, Dad, can I use the lawnmower to make some extra money? Now, I'm a father of a teenage son, and a father of a teenage son, I hear that my son wants to work. I go, fantastic. That's great news. I will happily lend you the lawnmower, thinking he's going to go out and mow some lawns and make some extra money that way. And the father in the, in the joke says, sure, son. And of course, below is the picture of the boy trying to sell the lawnmower. We often try to find the easy way out. If I can just have the easy way, I'll be just fine. Elimelech led his family as a trader. He was trading. He trade the short-term famine for a long-term pain. He traded the inheritance and blessings of God for a false god who was referred to as an abomination, who did not love him and care for him and die on the cross for him. And we want to be traders. We can trade when we face the facts. God's promises are true. 
Hard periods will come and you can't run away from problems. As you mull that over in your unique situation that you have for yourself, I want you to answer this question. It's on the bottom of your bulletin, but also be on the screen. And it says this, God is most glorified in my life when dot, dot, dot. How do you complete that sentence? Sometimes I look at sentences like that and I reflect and I think, what is the opposite of that? God is most unglorified in my life when you start filling in the blank. When I take control, when I seek to endure through trouble, when I try to escape trouble. But I firmly believe God is most glorified in my life when I allow God to be God and I enlist Him and His promises and to live life differently as a result. We have the privilege of glorifying God. And our problems are still problems, but we have the privilege of living in the presence and the promises of God. As you go out this week, I hope that this is an encouragement and a help to you and something that sticks in your mind because this right here as a foundation will, in a positive way, change your life for the better.